morning. My name is Carl Ingvi. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm going to read from the scripture. Reading from Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 to the end of the chapter. Uh, if you're using the Blue Bible, it's found on page 911. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came over upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You may be seated. So my name is Joseph Ray. For those of you that I haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, actually, for the next four weeks, Paul has given me the keys to the pulpit so you're going to be hearing from me for the next four Sundays, and um, we are actually going to talk about uh, what I think is one of the most maybe crucial subjects for us as a church to examine right now. That's a subject of Christian community. This is a crucial subject because in the last several years, we've seen a rise in measures related to both kind of personal and social fragmentation and also what seems to be just a, a general sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness that's kind of darkening and poisoning people's lives. So on the negative side, you know, we see that teenagers and young adults are reporting higher levels of things like anxiety and depression than like ever in recorded history. And that probably has a number of factors contributing to it, but one of the ones is definitely a sense or a lack of kind of stabilizing, strong, kind of meaning-giving relationships. And then, uh, you know, there's a category of death called death of deaths of despair. That's deaths related to things like suicides or drug overdose. Those things are shooting up in America. And once again, those things come from, among other factors, a lack of strong relationships that give someone a reason to live or a sense of a meaningful life. And we don't even need to talk about the societal pressures that we all feel to kind of fragment and polarize around like tiny political tribes or political causes over the dumbest possible things. But it seems like we're just fracturing into all these little pieces and all of these things. There's just social forces pushing us in all different directions. And I wish I could say that churches were naturally immune to this. By God's grace, I think our church, we think, has weathered these last several years in a really healthy way. But churches, too, they're being split or pushed to just kind of polarize and become like the old adage used to be about the Episcopal Church, you know, the Republican Party at prayer or the Democrat Party at prayer. So this is a temptation that we face as well to lose sight of the kinds of relationships and the kinds of sense of purpose that we are supposed to have as human beings. And so that's why there's a powerful need for real Christian community. But on the positive side, it's just not all negative. It's not a bleak picture. Is there's an incredible joy to be found in real Christian community. 
So what you might not know about, you know, the, um, you know, Wendy Holdsworth's mother passing this weekend and Sharon and Max Radford's son uh, getting married is that the Radfords and the Holdsworths are actually in a community group together. That group has been together for about 15 years. So for a decade and a half, they have been living life together. So they've been in each other's kids' weddings. Uh, they've been in hospitals together. They go on vacations together. They play games together. They pray together. They have been through an incredible series of joys and sorrows and just normal life in between as a group for like probably more hours than they could tally up. And all of the, that time together, all those hours over the years have created these thick relationships that make it so that they, they know they are known and they are cared for and they are pushed and encouraged on in their relationship with Christ so that they are more mature through this relationship than they would have been without it. So there's an incredible joy and value to Christian community, which means it's a gift, it's a blessing, not just a need for us. So we're going to spend the next four weeks asking the question, what is Christian community? I think the title of the sermon is, What is Gospel Community? Because it's possible to have the name Christian and totally miss the gospel. Um, what does it really mean to be part of a group of men and women who are united by and being formed by the Christian gospel and growing in God? And that should lead us naturally to the question as we explore that, am I experiencing this community? That's what I hope that each of us asks through these four weeks. Are the, the men and women that I'm in relationship with, if I have this kind of relationship at all, um, in this kind of gospel community? so that we are being known and cared for and formed and shaped according to the vision of what we see in the scriptures. Because this is something that we as a church want you, whether you've been here for years or whether this is your first Sunday, to experience. And that may be here, that may be somewhere else. We want this for you. And I'll say up front, the beginning of this four-week series, that I'm taking a bit of a risk by spending four weeks talking about community and encouraging you to seek it out because we don't require or ask our members to be part of one of our community groups. We just want you to have community. But we do our best to provide community groups to accommodate everyone who comes here looking for one. And right now, we have plenty of groups, but most of them are pretty full. And so I realize that if I have a wave of you who are wanting to be part of a community group, we're going to need to form new groups, kind of as we look through the summer to the fall. And so that's something I'm praying for, not just that, you know, you as a congregation will feel moved to seek out community, but that we will have people uh, like the Dutils who are leading a little lunch uh, right after church today for families that live in the Leland area who are interested in a community group, but people who are willing to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'd be willing to uh, be part of the leadership to form a new community group because that may be something we need as we go on. So I just want to acknowledge that that is our reality. I would love for you to be part of groups, but that may include you helping start the group. So take that for what it's worth. Um, so let's pray, and we'll get into our passage uh, for today. Dear God, you have existed from eternity as a community. Um, you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are not just, just one. Uh, you are one and three. And so when you save us, you bring us into a community that has already existed, and a community that exists really worldwide in one sense, every Christian through history across the world is part of one community in Christ. But that community takes the form of local churches, 
and even kind of in a narrower sense of these kind of close circles of men and women who are living life together and growing as a small little spiritual family in you. So I pray that you would help us see kind of this high-level vision for what community is and can be today. And I pray that you would move us, whether it's here at this church or through uh, some other means, to uh, seek out and to be part of communities that fulfill this great, wonderful vision. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage that Carl read today is in the book of Acts which is actually the sequel to the book of Luke, which we've been preaching through over this last year up until the summer. So where the book of Luke focuses on the life and ministry of Jesus while he was here on earth, and it ends with his death and resurrection, the book of Acts picks up with Jesus ascending back to heaven. So going back from earth to heaven, and then continuing to minister through the Holy Spirit and his apostles. And so it's sort of part two of this big story. And so what we have here in this event, uh, in this passage, is this takes place after the first major ministry event that occurs after Jesus goes back to heaven. So the Holy Spirit uh, comes and fills a group of disciples, and they go out and proclaim God's works uh, kind of in the middle of this big Jewish festival. And then Peter preaches this sermon uh, that's very warm and welcoming, and it ends with the phrase something like, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ whom you crucified. So it's a very warm and fuzzy beginning, but um, God uses that sermon to uh, convict and to save about 3,000 people, it says, are added to the congregation that day, which is a decent start to a ministry, you know, 3,000, not a bad beginning. Um, and so this passage gives kind of a summary of what that early Jesus community was like. Because coming to believe in Jesus isn't a one-time thing that happens like when you're eight and then you don't really think about it for the rest of your life. It changes your whole life, and not just your life personally, it changes your relational life. It changes the kind of social fabric that you become part of wherever you go. And so it has implications and really like transformative power uh, for an entire group of people, for a community. And that's what we see here in these six verses. It's kind of a very dense, compact summary of what that looks like. So we're going to read this passage every Sunday of this series and probably, you know, add in other passages as we go too to kind of build out specific details. But today we're going to look at this passage and we're going to get kind of the the 30,000 foot high level view of the question, what is a gospel community? What is a group of people who are united by and drawn together by the grace of God in Christ? And what makes that different from like a support group or a political action group or even a Bible study class? What's unique about these relationships? So we're going to see three qualities that make them uh, distinct. And the first quality is that Christian communities are personal. Christian communities are personal. So if you think about today's passage, just for a second, you know, you can probably see that 3,000 people didn't start meeting in one person's house. So in this passage talks about being in each other's homes and around somebody's table. It wasn't that someone's like, hey, you know what? I have a table that's like 5,000 feet long. Come on, you know, here we go. And they didn't pull their money together and, you know, build a mega church either right away. Um, so they, this 3,000 strong community subdivided into these smaller groups that could fulfill the vision of what we see in these verses. There were some things that like a big group of them could have done together, like worshiping the temple, 
but they lived their life together. They lived out their community in much smaller units of men and women. So let's look at verses 44 through 46 first. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. These early Christians were together, verse 44 says. That's not just coming together for worship in the temple. They broke bread in their homes, it says. They ate meals together. If you heard Lance and Lisa either on Sunday or Wednesday, you heard them talk about what that looks like in the Middle East where they minister. We have a hyper-scheduled culture here where, you know, like eating together is usually this very prepared affair that involves me cleaning my house desperately for two hours, setting out the nicest plates and cups, and then you coming over for like at most an hour and a half because more than that, it's overstaying your welcome. It's time to go. Uh, Over there, they said, when you come over to someone's house, you might get invited in off the street, and you're there for hours. You could be there all day long, all night long. And that kind of like makes my heart like twist up a little bit. I don't know if it does to you, of someone in my house for five hours. But, um, but that's the norm for hospitality. Really, it more, you know, like around the world and through history than ours is today. Uh, that's more of what it looks like for a group of people to be together in the sense that this passage describes. Um, in the ancient Near East, sharing a meal with someone was a very intimate act. That's why people got so mad about Jesus sharing meals with sinners. It wasn't like, oh, you met this guy at Arby's. How dare you? It was you're in the home for five hours of this person that you know, kind of the self-righteous religious people would say, they're a sinner. Like, how dare you sort of like stain yourself by being with them in that way? That showed how powerful it was and how meaningful it was to show hospitality, to be in relationship together. When we were interviewing with a church in Indianapolis, this was uh, before we had kids, so I was just finishing up seminary, we went up there, we had no connections in Indy, we didn't know anyone, um, but one of the folks that I was going to be working with invited us over to his and his wife's house. Uh, they had four small kids. They had triplets and a bonus, um, which we have four kids more spaced out than that, so I have a sense of what that's like. But they invited us over for a meal, and I don't remember the meal. It wasn't on fancy china. It was on plastic plates and plastic cups. Um, but we hung out with them and their kids, and then we helped clean up, and we helped put their kids to bed, and then we hung out for a few hours after that and just got to know them. And that was the beginning of one of the deepest friendships that we had during our time in Indy was this family who didn't uh, entertain us. There's nothing wrong with entertaining in the sense of having a fancy event, but who showed hospitality to us by inviting us into their lives. That extended God's grace to us and was a huge part of us getting folded into that church and that community. So that's a little bit of what community looks like. Christian community is built on thick relationships that come out of times like that. Times of just being neighborly, doing small things like meals together, um, or fun things together too. Um, Nancy Phillips leads a community group of young women, and once they had a great British baking show themed event where I believe Paul was like a Paul Hollywood style judge on that. I haven't seen pictures, but I, uh, I need, we need to find those. But 
Uh, but just fun things together like that. We can laugh and have a good time together. Those build these thick relationships that are part of Christian community. Everything doesn't have to be, uh, you know, spiritually driven or directly spiritual. Um, that depth is actually vital. Uh, it's not just to community, but to our souls. That's something that we need more than many of us realize. And that's not the only, so we, you know, the hospitality fun side is a big part of thick relationships. But like most of us probably know, that's not the only side. It's not the only part of Christian community. Christian communities also need deep relationships. So in verse 45, which we read, you can see that the Christians knew each other well enough to know when someone had a deep financial need. Now, it's really easy to get together with people and complain kind of in general or in the abstract about things being expensive, right? You can have a long conversation about gas prices right now or grocery store prices. But to acknowledge, to admit that I have a serious financial need, that is just, ugh. You know, that is not something that we do together, maybe to a close family member, not to anyone else. And so this shows like a level of depth that these communities were willing to engage in uh, as part of their growing together and building a relationship together. And this depth is actually vital, not just to community, but to our own souls. One passage that makes this explicit is James 5.16, which says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, you can kind of fake it through the fun side of relationships, and you can kind of fake it through religious activities. You can come to church on a Sunday morning, look well put together, sing loud, do all the things that people assume you're sort of an upstanding, solid Christian. But you can do all of those things without actually opening your heart up to anyone and without actually having a real relationship with God. Traditional church communities, you know, have actually historically can be pretty good at this, really good at fostering that kind of community. And that may be what some of you think that churches are sort of these communities of sort of well-washed hypocrites who come together to congratulate each other on a Sunday morning and then go back to, you know, whatever they're doing with the rest of their lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian and pastor, he called those kind of communities, the self-righteous religious community, the pious fellowship. And listen to how he describes it. He writes this, The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Without depth, without real depth that comes from the gospel, which we'll get to later, um, we have a pious fellowship of people who dare not be sinners. And when real sin is exposed, it's a matter of horror rather than an opportunity for grace. So that's what it can feel like to participate in a church community that has no depth. That we're visibly Christians, but really we're alone with our sin. We're in lies and hypocrisy. We're living in the dark. And in that darkness, what grows is just bitterness and despair. Going deep as a community means opening up our struggles, our failures, our fears, and our pain to one another. It means bringing those things into the light, not just so they can be seen and we can be made to feel better somehow, but so they can be transformed and we can begin to be healed 
That's what the James passage is about, not physical healing, but spiritual healing that comes through confession. So when we open our souls honestly to people we trust, with the good, the bad, the ugly, and the I don't even know what to do with this, can you help me with this thing, then someone receives it and helps us sort through it, God can really begin bringing us the transformation that we need. Let's hear Bonhoeffer again. He says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Uh, Slight content warning, I'm about to talk about a a cut, a wound. Uh, Our oldest daughter cut her foot on an oyster this week while she was swimming. Uh, It's just like the top of her foot. It wasn't that bad, but it was, let's go to the doctor, bad. Um, And what we found out when this happened was that actually they don't do stitches for oyster cuts because most of the time there's either like ocean particles or other particles or just germs that are in the wound that if it's just stitched over too soon and covered over, those things will like grow and get infected and fester instead of coming out. And so they leave the wounds more open than you might be comfortable with a wound being for a time so that the nasty stuff inside can uh, be brought out by the, the body's healing process and the body can actually heal. So that's what, you know, like a, a confessing a deep Christian body can be like. We don't just paper over like a huge confession with like, but God forgives me and it's fine. Or like this massive wound in our soul with, but I'm going to rejoice things are okay. Um, small things, maybe we can do that. We continue, we remind ourselves of God's forgiveness. We remind ourselves of joy and gratitude. But when we have something that is a gaping hole in our souls, we don't need to stitch that over and pretend that it's gone from like one week of acknowledging it. We need these ongoing deep relationships so people can continue to speak truth into our lives. And so we can continue to see those things healed by God's grace by being in the light. So that's what confession is. It's not rattling off my flaws or my failings, you know, like one and done and it's over. It's a deep relationship where someone is seeing into my soul and walking through those things with me so I can be healed from them. If you spent time with Paul, Pastor Paul, since he started his Soul Care Institute, he may have asked you the question, how's your soul? I had a professor in seminary who would ask the same question if he was sitting one-on-one with a student, you know, for a conversation. How is your soul? What that is, is that's an invitation to begin going deep. How's your soul isn't tell me your activities this week. It's what's going on in your heart right now, which honestly, like, some of us aren't that reflective or introspective, so that can be a hard question to answer right off. We can be caught off guard by it, but that's the kind of question that invites and fosters depth. And so that's part of us coming together as a Christian community is as we do other things, asking ourselves, how is your soul? And having that be part of the relationship that we build. But Christian communities are personal. They're personal in that they spend good time, quality time together. And they're personal in that they go deep so we can be really, truly healed. 
that's usually best done with a very small group of all men if you're a man or all women if you're a woman. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be deep with everyone at the same level. You shouldn't be. That's not really wise. Um, but it is so life-giving when you have that close personal relationship that you can be deep with. So that's the first quality of a gospel community. The second quality is that a Christian community, a gospel community, is purposeful. Christian communities are purposeful. For this, I just want us to look at the very first phrase of our passage, the beginning of verse 42. And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. So that word devoted in Greek is made up of the word persevere, like to endure, and the word toward, in a certain direction. So to devote yourself is to persevere against you know, pressure or resistance in a particular direction, no matter what the forces around me are doing. In 2006, uh, MTV put out a documentary called Two-A-Days, which followed the high school football team, the Hoover Buccaneers. So this is Hoover in Alabama. Um, my wife's brother actually played for the team, but it was pre-documentary, so he wasn't in this. Um, so as you might imagine, football in Alabama is somewhat competitive, uh, somewhat of a big deal. And when this documentary starts, the Bucks are on a 23-game winning streak, and they're chasing their fourth state championship in five years. So they are winning, and they're under a high-pressure set of circumstances. And the documentary's title, Two-A-Days, refers to two practices a day for the high school football team. So it hints at how these players devoted themselves to the success of their team. They gave up sleep for early mornings. They gave up hangout time in the afternoons. They gave up nights and weekends and free time so they could become the best football players they could be, theoretically, uh, and they could win this next state championship. They devoted themselves to a cause bigger than themselves so that being on the football team wasn't just about them or about enjoying being on the team. It was there for a purpose, there for a mission. Christian communities are purposeful too. Our next three sermons are actually going to dig into that purpose. So we're not going to go into them like on detail today. It's literally next sermon is on part of the purpose, then the next, then the next. Um, but we actually have three purposes they're summarized in what Christians call the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. So those are, kind of in their order, you shall love the Lord your God with everything that you've got, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and go and make disciples of all nations. Those three commands form the purposes for all Christian lives, and Christian communities live out those purposes at a small scale and support those. We could actually see all three of those in the passage, which uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to get into. Um, for today, I just want us to see that we come together not just to be together and build friendships, so those are great, but we come together to devote ourselves to the calling God lays on every person. The calling to see and enjoy him and grow in that ability so that we can love him with everything that we have. The calling to love our neighbors as ourselves, that's what Jesus said would define, would distinguish his own disciples. He said, they shall know you by your love for one another. And then to participate in God's great work of renewing the world by rescuing people to himself. So our two-a-days life 
our, the sacrifices that we make, big or small, to be part of a Christian community are part of devoting ourselves to that purpose that we've been called into. So for now, that's what we just want to see. A Christian community has that threefold purpose. And the great thing about this purpose, other than it being the one that we were literally created to fulfill, so it's actually living out the deepest desires of the human heart, is that you can follow it whether you're old or young, whether you're rich or poor, single or married, kids, no kids, whatever state or stage of life you are in, you can live these things out. Most of the American purposes that are you know, popular and touted about, you've got to be rich, young, you know, with like massive amounts of social capital and opportunity to pursue, or you don't have a chance. You're not really living a fulfilled American life. Um, you know, the family that Lance talked about last week, who are day laborers in a you know, like relatively small place in the Middle East, they would have no hope of having a purpose from the way that we tend to define it. But these purposes here, <coughs> excuse me, they're accessible to anyone, and nothing can take that from a human life, whatever has happened to you. So we are seeing, like I said at the beginning, people getting crushed and poisoned, chasing after purposes that you know, like may be impossible for them and aren't even satisfying if they achieve some level of them. And so what we need is a return to the true purpose, the true reason that we were called and created to exist. And our communities are meant to coach one another in that purpose. So like we saw already, that, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we can never talk about anything but Jesus, or we can never just hang out. Um, all of the thick relationship building things are part of it. But we need uh, uh, maybe this heart check in our communities. Is my community also moving me forward in these purposes? Are we encouraging each other in the worship of God, the love of neighbor, the making of disciples? Are, are there maybe corrections that we need to make along the way because we're kind of steering off into a different direction or just losing direction entirely? <clears throat> so that's purpose. Christian communities, gospel communities are purposeful. I'm going to drink a little bit more water, and then we'll talk about the third quality there. So here's the third quality of Christian community. It's powered by the gospel. Christian community is powered by the gospel. Because something is going to happen when a group of people try to build deep relationships that are devoted to the pursuit of God's kingdom. They're going to fail. They're going to run into other human beings who are awkward, who have issues, who have blind spots, who have problems, who have hurts, and who have straight-up sins against one another. We are going to disappoint, we are going to be frustrated with, and we are going to outright harm or sin against one another. And the tendency in that time is going to be either to just throw up our hands and say, nope, I'm going to pull the eject lever, tried that, it was done, no thanks, no more Christian community for me. Or it's to say, why don't we just pick some other territory that we can be united about? Let's just talk politics because we all have the same politics. Or let's just do relational stuff because, you know, I don't want anyone kind of pushing me along in this way or putting their finger on this thing that hurts me. 
And so we tend to either back out of community entirely or just try to transform it into something that's much more comfortable for us. That's because uh, we're always tempted to make a Christian community about something other than the gospel. And if the gospel doesn't saturate us and saturate our relationships, that's what it's going to do. So what is, how do we talk about the gospel and how, what it means for community? This is actually summarized really powerfully in one verse in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7. I'm going to read it twice. It reads, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we welcome each other. We participate. We invite others into community as Christ has welcomed us for God's glory. See, the gospel is a message that we are not naturally okay. We're not actually really great people if you get to know us in the right way um, with a handful of little like flaws and peccadillos that you know make little speed bumps here and there. That we have failings and flaws and just selfishness that make us hard to love, <laughs> make us impossible to love. That's why it's so tempting to hide those things and just make a pious fellowship. Let's just talk about the, the easy religious, we'll just use a bunch of religious language, and that's all. You know, we'll call it that way. Or to just keep relationships at arm's distance, because we're not actually lovable, like we confess today. But the truth of the gospel is that God knew that. God knows it better than we know it about ourselves, because he knows us more deeply and honestly and truly than we know ourselves. It's worse, probably, than we, most of us think the situation is, we're really not lovable. But God has chosen to love us anyway. See, God the Father sent God the Son, who became the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, we call him, fully God and fully human. In that life and death, uh, he was a perfect, sinless man. And in that life and death and that resurrection that he lived, he made a bridge that could reconnect God and humankind that could bring us back to the holy God. And he made a sacrifice that paid for our selfish actions and thoughts and desires, not just the stuff that we do, but the stuff that's in our heart that we're thinking, that we know and that can acknowledge if we're honest that we want to do. He didn't diminish or explain away or kind of sweep our sins under the rug. He covered them. He paid for them and he welcomed us back into the fellowship with God that we, by nature, rejected. And when he did that, he brought us back into that purpose of living for the glory of God, of showing us how to love others by laying down his own life for us, and by bringing us into that great mission of God spreading his glory through the world by making us disciples by his grace. And now God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has been sent into our hearts and into our communities to bring that grace home to us and to help us experience God's welcome, even as we keep living in our flaws and our failures and our sins. See, a community of people who have received that gospel, who have been brought into that relationship with God, is not going to be a pious fellowship. 
Because that's impossible. And we know that that's impossible. And it's not going to be a purposeless fellowship either where we just hang out in our feelings and our failings and do whatever we feel because we know that's not the way that we're supposed to live. That's not the life that God calls for us. It's going to be a community that not just once, but over and over welcomes people back into a relationship because we're welcomed back into that relationship with God and then spurs one another on to live anew for God's glory. Knowing we're going to fail, we're going to stumble, we're going to have issues and blind spots and things that come up, and we're going to need that grace over and over and over again. But God provides that grace over and over and over again, and that fuels us to pick up, bring another back in, and keep going. Once I was talking with a friend about a sin that I was really struggling with, I went on for a while, and finally he stopped me and said, do you need to hear that you're forgiven for this? Do you need to hear that you're forgiven in Christ? Because you are. You're confessing this to me. You're repenting of it. You are forgiven in Christ. He didn't tell me, hey, you're actually a great person, you know, or this isn't that bad. Don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, and I didn't become forgiven when he told me that, you know, God forgave me. But something about him speaking that word over me it made it more real than I could make it for myself. And it didn't put an end to that issue forever, but it was like a redemptive turning point in my life to have someone speak over me, you're forgiven. Let's keep going. Let's get back up. That is something we need as Christian communities. We need to see the gospel in a fresh light, which means we need to hear it spoken from one another. We need to see it incarnated in one another, opening homes to, uh, to us. And we need these redemptive relationships. That's what we want for you and for our communities. We want redemptive relationships that point you and point others to the welcome that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And we have the special privilege today of acknowledging that welcome together through communion. See, communion is a special meal uh, for all baptized Christians that represents symbolically the grace that Jesus has shown us through the forgiveness he earned for us. See, the night before that he was crucified, um, he took bread, he was eating with his disciples, and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body. That's broken for you. And he took a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that has been poured out for you. So his body was broken to make the body of Christ. And his blood was shed that we could be forgiven. That we could receive that grace and be brought back into a relationship with him. So what we're going to do first is we're going to open up this top paper here, take the wafer, and open up the next part. So we come together and we acknowledge the fact that Jesus, by his grace, gave his body and his blood for us. Let's eat and drink. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave your body to make a body. That you were willing to die, that we could be welcomed back into a relationship with you, reunited with you and brought into communities where we can see that redemption lived out and incarnated through thick personal relationships and through the being reunited to the purpose you've called us to. And so I pray that uh, we could see your grace in a fresh way and that we could experience these transformative, purposeful relationships that help us live the way that we are called to live for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.